Now, most of the time when we're in churches and Emily's going to give her testimony, she'll usually start out like this and she'll say, what's a nice Jewish girl like me doing in a place like this? Okay? <laughs> I'd like to flip that a little bit and say, what's a nice Gentile boy like me doing in Jewish missions? Okay, well, that goes back about 45 years. And then I met in Bible college. And in Bible college, I wanted to build churches because I had a, a skill for that. Emily wanted to go into Jewish ministry. And you can see who won, okay? <laughs> but it took a long time. We went in, into private uh, uh, contracting business for about tw 25 years. And I said, in 2000, we joined Chosen People Ministries. And we're very, very thankful for the life that God has given to us of serving Him all around the world, wherever we go. And one of the greatest joys that we have is when we finish projects, these building projects that we do with these Messianic centers, that God fills them with, with Jewish people. And every building that I do, within six months to a year, is overcrowded. They have to expand. They have to do something or find a new building. And that's just a testament to God that God has not forgotten his people. And he never will. Emily is a living testimony to that. God has always said he will leave a remnant of, of his people. And Emily is one of those remnants. And I'm just so thankful that God has allowed me, a Gentile boy, to get involved in, in Jewish ministry and to see many, many Jewish people come, come to faith. And that's what excites us when we go out. Even though it's been highs and lows, missionary work isn't always high all the time. There's a lot of lows there. But when you're in those lows, God brings you back up to the heights, and he puts people in your path, and puts things that happen to you that will reassure you once again that he's in control, and that he will just guide you and, and bring you through the times. Um, you may be wondering why we're standing here in the middle of the summer in a, next to a Sukkot booth. And this is a replica of a Sukkot booth. We spoke in a church a, lo a long time ago, and a little girl came up to me after the service and said, how does the family fit in there? So this is a model of a, of, of a large. Large ones are usually anywhere from 8 by 8 to maybe 8 by 20. It's all according to how many uh, people are in the, in the fa family. I'm going to move this back. Well, place yourself back in the time of Nehemiah in Jerusalem. It was the month of Tishri when the fall feasts of Israel were to be observed. And they are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Now, the people had just been read the Law of Moses for the first time after returning from the exile. They had most likely forgotten the law and their traditions and their feasts. But after hearing God's word, they wept and were eager to obey the commandments of the Lord. Now listen to what they heard from Leviticus 23 regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. Can you imagine being commanded to rejoice for seven days? It's an amazing command, a wonderful command, but sometimes I find it hard even to rejoice in the Lord for one day. Can you imagine rejoicing for seven days in Him? Um, we should try to practice that even more. Now in the book of Nehemiah, the startling fact is revealed that this feast was kept for the first time since the days of Joshua, centuries earlier. Now there are several names for this feast. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was observed by the building of booths to commemorate the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. During those 40 years, the Jewish people had to live in booths, emphasizing the temporary dwellings. In remembrance of those 40 years of uncertainty, each year Jewish people were to gather leaves and branches of three types of trees and to build and live in these booths for seven days. This reminded Jewish people then and now of God's faithfulness in guiding their path, quenching their thirst, satisfying their hunger, and providing shelter for protection. In ancient Israel, booths were in common use throughout the land. The Hebrew word sukkah, which is what this is called, a sukkah, originally meant woven. Temporary shelters were woven together from branches and leaves to protect livestock, warriors in the field, families, and harvest workers. Another name for this feast is called the Feast of Ingathering because it coincided annually with Israel's fall harvest, the final harvest of the year. Deuteronomy 16.13 says, You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and from your wine press. This is the last of the three Israelite feasts connected with the agricultural year and was from ancient times one of the most important feasts of Israel. This brings us to the third name of the feast. It is known as the Feast of the Lord or simply the Feast. And it's one of the three pilgrim feasts which is Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles in which all males were required to appear before the Lord in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. Now imagine, now just close your eyes for a minute, but not too long, okay? Just imagine you are in a group of Jewish pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, along with thousands and thousands of others passing through all the towns along the way. And picture thousands of God's people attending this festival with thankful hearts, because as an agricultural society, your storehouses were full. There were parades, music, huge festivities into the night filled with dancing and celebration because God had provided for them and his presence was with them. In Deuteronomy 16:15, it says, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Now the crops were gathered into the storehouses and the long hard labor was done the harvest was over, and God gave these seven days to set aside worldly cares and to thank and praise him who provides. They invited Levites, foreigners, the poor, the fatherless, servants, widows into their booths to stay and partake of God's provision. An important part of this feast was worshiping God through sacrifices. Never before had so many sacrifices been required of Israel on any one day. 
70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 lambs, altogether a total of 182 sacrifices daily, are offered during this period, plus 336 portions of flour for the meal offering. According to Ju Judaism, these 70 bulls represent the 70 Gentile nations of Genesis 10, who are the descendants of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Israel's role in world evangelism and world redemption is a major theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. Israel's mission was to proclaim to the world that the God of Israel is the only true God and that there is no other savior but he. Israel was also supposed to be a nation of intercessors for the sins of the Gentiles. And although Israel did not fulfill her mission, God completed the task himself by sending his son, Jesus. God is not finished with Israel, and the destiny of the world is linked with the destiny of Israel. The importance that God places on the Feast of Booths for all people cannot be minimized. In the Messianic Kingdom, after the Great Tribulation, not only Jewish people, but all nations will be required to keep the feast. In Zechariah 14, 16 and 17, we read, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So, how do Jewish people celebrate Sukkot today? As the sun sets at the end of the Day of Atonement, each Jewish family is supposed to drive the first nail of the Sukkot booth in anticipation of the joyous festival to come. And when Emma and I lived in Israel and when we lived in Brooklyn, during this time you would see hundreds and hundreds of Sukkot booths all over, this, all over the city. Now many people build them in their gardens, their backyards, or even on the rooftops of their apartment buildings. And often, however, since many of them cannot build them their own, the construction and decoration of the, suk of the suk sukkah becomes a community project at the synagogue, temple, and Jewish center. Now, wherever it is located, the sukkah is to be made of flimsy material to give the feeling of a temporary abode. It must give a sense of the insecurity the Jewish people felt during the wilderness wanderings. The roof is made of leaves and branches, and openings must be left in them so that the light of the moon, the stars, can be seen just as they were by our ancestors. Now, since we also celebrate the harvest at this time, the sukkah is made festive with fruits, vegetables, nuts, and even candy. And that's the part that the kids like when the candy's hanging from, from the roof. The rabbis say that it is a duty to make a beautiful sukkah in God's honor. It must provide room for a table and chairs or benches since we eat in the sukkah during the holiday and friends visit there for refreshments. Also, we, we must share our bounty with those less fortunate. It's a time when the Jewish people sing and dance and bring glory to God. The Feast of Booths is to be celebrated with three types of branches and a fruit. The lulav ties together the three types of leaves, palm branches, myrtle branches, and willow branches. And another feature is the etrog or citron, which is a citrus fruit. It symbolizes the fruit of the promised land. These were waved in every direction as a prayer for rain from God. Now come back with us to the Feast of Tabernacles during the time of Jesus. The city of Jerusalem was flooded with Jewish pilgrims from all over the world to participate in the feast. 
There were booths scattered all over the valleys and hills, rooftops and crowded streets of Jerusalem. Imagine sacrificial animals being herded th through the streets of Jerusalem for the large numbers of sacrifices necessary for each day of the feast. More animals were sacrificed during the week of Sukkot than any other time of the Jewish year. Now at the time of Jesus, there were two key ceremonies that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was the water drawing ceremony and the illumination of the temple. And I want you to pay close attention to both of those ceremonies as we go through. The water drawing ceremony was not part of the biblical celebration, but it had become tradition a hundred years before the time of Jesus. And because the Israelites depended upon God for the rain, they developed a ceremony in which they called upon their creator to provide heavenly waters for their crops. In Deuteronomy 11, God promised to send rain if the Israelites were obedient, but he promised also to withhold that rain if they were not. The water drawing ceremony occurred each day of the feast and began at dawn at the temple. Now all the worshipers are wearing festive garments and each one is carrying in their right hand the lulav, consisting, as Emily said, of the palm branch, the myrtle, and the willow, which are all tied together. And in their left hand, they are carrying the etrog. Now the worshipers were divided into three groups. Some would remain in the temple to attend the preparation of the morning service. Another group would travel down the hill to the Kidron Valley to a town called Mozah, where willow trees grew by the water. They would collect bunches of willow branches and bring them back to the temple, timing their arrival to coincide with the th third group, which is called the water processional, arriving just ahead of them. The branches were leaned up against the altar, making a canopy. The, this third group, the water processional group of fellow worshipers, along with liturgical flutists, accompanied the assigned Levitical Jewish priest. The whole entourage marched down the Temple Mount, down the Kidron Valley, to the Pool of Siloam, which was about a half a mile. This pool was built by King Hezekiah, using two teams of men to bore out a tunnel through 1,700 feet of solid rock. This was quite an engineering feat of that day. The two teams began at opposite ends, and incredibly, by shouting through the rock, they met in the middle, and they were only inches off. This allowed water to flow from the spring into the pool of Siloam, allowing a water source inside the walled city of Jerusalem. Now, I remember when we were in Jerusalem and, and Bob was busy working, a friend and I went down to Hezekiah's tunnel, and it's an amazing um, sight to see. It's only about this wide and um, some places a little wider, and, and it, you have to bring a flashlight with you because it is very dark and the water is sometimes up to your knees, sometimes up to your waist. And you have to walk through, holding the flashlight in one hand and holding onto the wall with the other. Um, sometimes there would all of a sudden be a dip underneath you because it, the ground would get lower. But it was an amazing feeling to go through that Hezekiah's tunnel, realizing that my people ahead of me had done that. Now, upon arriving to the Pool of Siloam, the priest would fill a special golden pitcher with water. Then they marched back up the Temple Mount through the water gate, which obtained its name from this ceremony, and marched to the altar amidst the mu music of flutes and the chants of the Levitical choir. Now, as they ascended the 15 steps into the temple compound, 
they sang the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalms 120 through 134. And as the priest arrived, the haunting blasts of the shofar were sounded. I have one here that Emily got in Israel. I'm going to try to blow this for you to have you see what it sounds like as the people are marching uh, towards the temple. thousands of those horns going off at the same time. <laughs> A little bit better than that, probably. Okay. Now the priest entered the temple area that went directly to the southern side of the great altar, and there he placed two mag magnificent silver basins on the southwest corner of the altar. And these two bowls were slightly different from one another. The wide-mouthed bowl on the eastern side was used to receive the wine of the drink offering. And the western basin was somewhat narrower, and into it was poured the water from the pool of Siloam. And this was followed by great re rejoicing. The flutists were joined by a choir of Israelites chanting the words of the, of the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And the worshipers would repeat Psalm 118:25, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, once again, imagine thousands and thousands of worshipers singing and shouting these words and shaking their lulav, the palm, the myrtle, and the willow, as the shofars blew louder and louder, and the musicians and the choirs raised their voices. And finally, after the special offering of the day, the priests would march around the altar. Now, this ceremony was to thank God for his bounty and to ask him to provide rain for the crops in the coming year. Now, because water was so scarce in the Middle East, the people were very much aware of their dependence on God for the rains that were so vital to the preservation of life. But the pouring out of the water had a much deeper importance than its agricultural implications. The water represented the Holy Spirit, and the water drawing pointed to that day when God would rain his spirit upon the Israelites. The prophets predicted the day would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the whole nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 24 and 27 reads, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. The prayer of every worshiper was, may God send his spirit upon us now. The rabbis wrote, why is the name of it called the drawing out of water? Because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, according to Isaiah 12:3, with joy shall ye draw out of the wells of salvation. The rabbis believed joy to signal the presence of God's spirit, and joy is one of the main themes of this feast. The Mishnah says that he who had not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water had not seen rejoicing in all his life. Now Jesus not only celebrated the feast, but he took two traditional elements of the, of the celebration and applied them to his own life and mission. And we find this particularly in John 7 and 8, where Jesus uses the two traditional symbols from the Feast of Tabernacles, water and light, to help the people understand who he is 
and what he has to offer. The drama of the water drawing ceremony took on a new meaning when Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I can imagine there's hundreds of thousands of people at this festival. They all know what the water means. And as we go through this, you'll see how important the words that Jesus said at that moment, what it means to his ministry. The drama of the water drawing ceremony took on new meaning when, the, when Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the seventh day of the feast, Hoshana Rabbah, which literally means the great Hosanna, and was called the great day of the feast. On this day, the priest circled the altar seven times as the cry, Hosanna, save us, was repeated seven times. And this was to remind the people of God's miracle at the walls of Jericho. Now normally only the priests were allowed in this section of the temple, but on the last day crowds of worshipers would gather into every part of the temple that was accessible to them in order to participate this. And that's very important that all those people were allowed to come into that part. Can you imagine Jesus being in the crowd at the pouring out of water? John 7:37 through 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now Jesus invited the whole congregation of Israel, along with all the religious leaders, to come and drink of that living water. The pouring out of the water of the Feast of Tabernacles symbolizes the indwelling Holy Spirit which Jewish and Gentile believers now experience and the future pouring out of the Spirit on the nation of Israel. The second ceremony during the time of Jesus was the illumination of the temple. There were four gigantic candelabras or lampstands similar to this, not exactly, but each one was 75 foot tall, and they were set up and lit in the temple compound towards sundown each evening of the feast. Each lampstand had four branches, and at the top of every branch was a large bowl. Now, four young men bearing 10 gallon pitchers of oil would climb up the ladders to the 75 foot tall candelabras, and they would fill four golden bowls on each lampstand. The wicks for these colossal lamps were made from the old worn-out linens, linen robes of the priests. When the oil in those bowls was ignited, picture 16 beautiful blazes leaping toward the sky from these golden lamps. Remember the temple was high on a hill above the rest of the city, so the glorious glow was a sight for the entire city to see. In addition to the light, Levitical musicians played their harps, lyres, cymbals, and the shofars to make a joyful noise to the Lord. The light emanating from those four lampstands was so brilliant that the rabbi said there was not a house lit in all of Jerusalem, not a house that was not lit by the light coming from those huge lampstands. The light reminded the people of God's Shekinah glory that once filled his temple. Do you remember devout old Simeon's words when Mary and Joseph came to the temple to present baby Jesus. He quoted Isaiah 49, 6, referring to Jesus the Messiah as a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. The brilliance of the holy city at the ceremony of the illumination of the temple 
paled in the presence of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, God's glory was once again present in that temple. In response to the second king's key ceremony, Jesus declared to thousands of worshipers in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine the thoughts running through the minds of not only the religious leaders, but also the many Jewish pilgrims? Could this possibly be the Messiah? In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. John wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled among us. The Greek word dwelt implies a temporary dwelling, a sukkah booth. As the temple was the temporary dwelling for the Shekinah, so Jesus, tabernacling among us, manifested the glory of God. He is the source of light and life to all who will believe in him. The Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the final rest as well as the final harvest. And John wrote in Revelation 21, 3 and 6, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now the Feast of Tabernacles has all of the, the key elements of rejoicing in God's faithfulness. He guides our path. He quenches our thirst with the Holy Spirit. He satisfies our hunger both physically and spiritually, and provides shelter, shelter and protection by dwelling with us. And although the feast was established by God, yet today many of our Jewish people do not know the joy of having their sins forgiven by their Messiah and the promise to dwell with them through the Holy Spirit. Bob and I have such a burden to share with our Jewish people about the message of the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the greatest Jews that ever lived, he was Rabbi Saul, but he became the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet he never forgot about his Jewish roots. And I'd just like to read to you a couple of his words from the book of Romans. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Can you hear the passion in Paul's voice for his own people? This passion which we share with Paul comes from God himself. Missions is God finding those whose hearts are right with him and placing them where they can make a difference for his kingdom. I'd just like to read that again. Missions is finding the, those whose hearts are right with him and placing them where they can make a difference for his kingdom. Do you have a Jewish friend or neighbor? Ask God to give you a passion and boldness to share our Messiah with those around you. 
And that's what keeps Emma and I going every single day, is that God has, has instilled in my heart as a Gentile and, 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 and in Emily's heart for her own people to see Jewish people come to faith. And God is doing that. God is a God of promise. And he promises that he would redeem his people, and he's doing that all over the world today. And one of the biggest ministries that Chosen People has right now is, is in Israel. We have about 40 staff, and every day they are talking about Israelis com coming to faith, and we're just so, so thankful for that. As we close, Emily and I would like to do the Aaronic benediction for you. And what we will do, we will say it in Hebrew to you, and then translate it back into English. And this comes from Numbers 6, 24, 26. Yibreka Kadanai Vishmareka Yair Adonai Panavaleka Vikuneka Yisay Adonai Panavaleka Vyasem Laka bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's pray. <clears throat>